Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. I hurt myself this week, so I'm going to sit down as I teach today. Um, I was working out at the gym and was squatting like 500 pounds or something. And my back like tweaked and spasmed and I hit the floor. And so I couldn't walk yesterday, but I'm walking today, but I'm going to sit right here. But don't think I'm taking it easy on you today, okay? Uh, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be today for our teaching, Colossians chapter 3. If you're new to Hill City, if you're a guest here, welcome. We're glad you're at our church. Uh, The first step for you to get connected to our church is something called Hill City 101. We do it every few weeks. Uh, it's just a chance for us to connect with you and tell you about our church and learn about it. So if you're new and you, you're looking at what's it look like to get plugged in, that's your first step. You can register online or go to the connections table on your way out and register for Hill City 101. We'd love to have you there. Um, so Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. And we're in this series, this book of Colossians, or this letter to the church in Colossae. And we're trying to see what God has had for them and then what he has for us. And we have a creative team at our church that, that does a lot of the media that you see, the videos. And when I, we were doing Colossians, they, they found out we are going to do it. They're like, Hood, t- tell us the, like, what's the overall message behind Colossians? And they came up with this title for the series called Siblings and Saints. And it's a really profound title for a series on the study of Colossians. Because siblings and saints are siblings and saints. Here's the idea. That... Because you are in Christ, which we're going to see, you're, you're a child of God, you're loved by him, you're in Christ, you are a saint. Is that how you see yourself? Well, of course not. You're a saint. God loves you, he looks at you, your identity is secure, we'll get to that in a second. And then, what the church is, is a collection of saints who have now been brought together to be siblings. And in this Colossian church, there's all kinds of different beliefs and understandings and backgrounds that were causing some trouble for them to live as siblings. And so Paul's writing this letter of Colossians, teaching their identity, their saints, and now inviting them to be siblings. And then in chapter 3, now, what does it look like to be siblings? How do we do that? So we've taught through the first two chapters pretty quick. We're going to hover over chapter 3 for about four weeks and look at just some of the aspects of chapter 3. What does it look like for us now at Hill City Church to be saints who are, have a secure identity in Christ and to be siblings brought together in this thing called the church. Um, Colossians 3, 1 through 3 is where where we will start. Here's what it says. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Brad did an awesome job last week with his sermon. If you haven't listened, go back and listen. He talked about this idea that the invitation is to set our minds on things which are above Christ. And that setting your mind is an intention. It's an intentional thing that you do, that you have to set our minds on our thoughts on Jesus and what he is doing and what he has done. And then he goes to verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
So before Paul ever gets in chapter 3 to his list of what to do and not do, he hammers their identity, who they are. Now, it's different. A lot of you grew up in churches where it's like, here, do this, don't do this. And we miss the identity part. What we do must flow out of our identity. So what is their identity? He says, you have died and your life now is hidden with Christ. So he wants them to view themselves as there's a part of them that have died and now there's a new part of them that's alive and this new life is hidden with Christ. That term, that circle, I want you to circle in your Bibles, hidden with Christ. It's the same term as being in Christ. Here is what it means. That when Jesus looks at you now, if you're a child, if you're a follower of Jesus, when God looks at you now, he doesn't see your sin, he sees Jesus. You are hidden with Christ. This is my best, very simple hood example of this. Um, this phone represents you and all that you have done. Good, bad, ugly, a lot of ugly, fair? Oh, just me? Not you all? Okay, all right. Good, bad, and ugly. This life represents, or this phone represents you. This Bible represents Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, all that Jesus has done. When you come to faith in Jesus, here's what happens. You are hidden in Christ. This is what it looks like in my silly example. is God takes you and all that you've done, and he takes Jesus and all that he has done, and he puts you right here, and he closes it. You're hidden with Christ. So now when God looks at you, what does he see? Not what you did last night. Now, does he see that? Of course. Does he invite you to repent? Yes, we'll get to that. Identity speaking, who does he see? Jesus. That's why he says in chapter 3, you have died, your old identity, that person's dead, and you're now hidden with Christ in God. So he's going to tell them what to do in a second. But what to do must come out of who they are. Who are they? Hidden in Christ. We must not get the cart before the horse. The Christian life is not about you and what you're doing. It's about Jesus and what he has done. And now you're hidden in Christ, which gives you the fuel and the motivation to then begin to change. Romans 5, Paul, if you want to read this, Paul talks about this idea. Here's the idea of Romans 5. There's two identities. This is what Paul's saying in Colossians. You can have an identity of Adam. In Romans 5, 12, he talks about how sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and this sin spread to all men and women, you. This is one identity, Adam. Adam came, was given, put on, on earth by God to faithfully fulfill and partner Fulfill God's promises, partner with God. Did Adam do that perfectly? No, he sinned. So in Romans 5, he says, here's one identity, Adam, and his rebellion. Here's a new identity, Jesus, five, Romans 5, 15. If many died, it says, to one man's trespass, how much more through one man's free gift can we live? It's a new identity. There's two options, Jesus or Adam. So in Romans 5.18, he says this, Therefore, as one trespass, Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so does one act of righteousness, Jesus, lead to justification for all men. 
There are two options for your identity. You are either in Adam or in Christ. You're not both. And we, we communicate this wrong sometimes in church. Like we say, well, I have a new self, but I also have an old self that still lives within me. No, you don't. You have a new self. It's called Jesus. Now, where Paul will get in this idea is, um, so you're a saint because of this new identity. However, when you come to Christ, it's not that all the old struggles just dis disappear. Anyone, is that your story? Yeah, it, right, it's not. So we have a completely new self in this identity. Sin's penalty is gone. It's a new self, loved by Christ, hidden in Christ. But we have this old identity, and sin's power still is over us. Brad talked about it like this last week. Um, you have neural pathways in your brain that lead you to do the same thing over and over again. When you got saved, Jesus didn't come and just change all those neural pathways. That was last week's message if you didn't hear it. No. And so the Christian life is now learning to live more like Christ. And every time I do that, new neural pathways are made and I begin to live differently. So hear me. This is huge. We're going to talk about what to do and not do. That comes because you have an identity in Christ. And now the invitation is, you have a new identity, so let's stop living out of the old identity. So the term he'll use here is the term put on and put off. He'll say, put on these things, compassion, kindness, grit. Put off these things, anger, wrath, malice. It's put on and put off. It's not become someone different. You've already become in Christ. The old identity's gone. The put on, put off, it's the idea of clothing, okay? So if we take an orphan that grew up in the slums for the first five years of their life, they slept on the street, and that orphan is adopted by a family. Their identity has changed, correct? And they are given new clothes that reflect their new identity. But you're telling me that orphan gets out of that house and doesn't want to put the old rags on? That's what they know. That's what they're used to. That's the idea. Your identity is changed. God has adopted you. You're changed. And now the invitation is, let's put on the new clothes that come with that identity. And let's let go or get rid of the old clothes. That's the mindset. Uh, the message translation of this little section, I love what it, how it says. It says this, you're done with the old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes that you've stripped off and you put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new life is custom made by the creator with his label on it. You see that? It's looking at your life as a new identity. That was my old self. I am now in Christ. And so now let me put on the clothes that represent me being in Christ. And that is an everyday situation. That is an every minute situation. In every moment, right now, will I put on my new clothes of being clothed in Christ and live out of that new identity or will I put on my old clothes and live out of that identity? So if we look at his flow here, he talks about their identity. You're chosen, you're hidden in Christ as the fuel to begin to put on and put off you're saints. And now look what he says in verse 11 of chapter 3. Here, in this new community, there's not Greek and Jew 
and circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarian and Scythian and slave and free. There's not all these things. We're siblings now. We all have the same inheritance. We've been brought together as family. He says, but Christ is all and in all. So here's his flow. You are a new creation, a new identity in Christ. And God takes a bunch of people who have all kinds of backgrounds, and now he brings them into something called the church to be siblings. Look around. Look around. What you see is more true, brothers and sisters, than your real family. You have a new identity that forms a new community. Siblings. Now, apparently what's happening in this Colossian church is you have all these people from different backgrounds and different beliefs and different practices, different ideas, different political stances, and they were at odds with one another. Now, I know we can't understand that, right? We can't get our mind around how people in a church might be dividing over different things, about how we could kind of get into our own uh, little, little pockets and tribal, tribalism that comes up and then we, we get angry at other people. We can't relate to that, right? Yeah, didn't think so. Um, but apparently in this church it is a problem. And what's happening is all these different people, the Jews looking at the Scythian saying, what's wrong with you? Why don't you believe this and this and this? And then the, the, uh, the Gentiles looking at the, the slave and saying, well, I'm so much better than you. And it's dividing their church. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach on this in a few weeks, this idea more. So he's writing this letter to this church saying, listen, you all have the same identity. You're all siblings. Now, here's how to live all that new identity. And when you do, here's how a community will be changed. And this is the reason your elders chose to do this Colossians series. Is we wanted to hover on chapter 3 and what it looks like to live out of a new identity and how that will impact a church. Because Hill City is still four and a half years old. We're not even five. We are still changing, the, developing our culture. And we want to have a culture for our church that's modeled out of Colossians 3. That we are saints who are brought together to be siblings and have a new way of relating to one another as siblings out of this new identity of Christ. All right, verse 5. So Paul takes three chapters to get to his list. The Christian life is not about do and don't do. It's about Jesus has done. And now, because Jesus has done, okay, what do I need to do? Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So he's going to group some, some sins here. The first group, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He's going to list, he's going to group some what we might call personal sins together. A, a lot of sexual sins, which in that, in that church, in that context, everything about the worldview was sex equals worship of God. I mean, they had prostitutes at the temples. It's, it's a kind of a whacked up culture there. Um, I, I know we can't relate to any of that still. Um, but he first talks about their sexuality. Okay, pause, Hill City Church. Um, are we a church that's inviting you to dress with your broken sexuality? Yes. And we're a church that assumes every single sexuality is broken. 
that that list is not for the, quote, sinners. Well, it is. Yes, you. So he starts with a list of personal struggles. And they all have a sexual connotation to him. Brad will teach on this in a few weeks. This was what he's going to do when it snowed and we couldn't meet. So he says, verse 6, on these the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. And now, verse 8, so we have a personal list of sins in verse 6, and now, verse 8, we have a relational list of sins. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. So he has one list. Then he has another list. Now, here's the problem oftentimes in church is we take the first list and we elevate the first list above the second list. No, it's all the same. The question I might ask, are you as concerned about your own failures with anger and wrath and slander as you are others' broken sexuality? So here's the invitation. Let's put off the old clothes Let's put on the new clothes. So what we'll do over the next four weeks is we'll just take a couple of the old clothes and a couple of the new clothes and we'll talk about them. Today, here's what we're going to look at. Put off anger, wrath, and malice. Those are old clothes that represent the old identity. And put on compassion and kindness. That's, that's what we'll address today. I just had to get into some theology to set us up. So put on, or I'm sorry, put off anger, wrath, malice. Put on kindness compassion. Let's talk anger, wrath, malice. The anger and wrath are words used interchangeably in the Bible, um, and they talk, it's the idea of anger that involves tyranny, bitterness, rage, resentment, outburst of anger, quick fuses. Hear me, I want to make sure we say this, there is a righteous anger that is good. Jesus got angry, didn't he? He flipped the tables, but Jesus' anger wasn't a bitterness. It was a, there was a righteous anger to it. There is a righteous anger that says this is wrong. And there's anger that leads to treating that person out of that anger in a way that's tyranny. So when we talk about anger, it's, these, it's, it's the, the evil side of anger, the outbursts, the rage, uh, the resentment, the bitterness, malice. So he says put off anger, wrath, and malice. Malice is this it's a heart, heart level thing. It's a desire to hurt, a desire to attack, a desire to bring harm and distress to someone. So he says, put off anger, wrath, malice. That's the old clothes. Um, why we chose this series. Six, eight months ago, we're wrestling through what are we going to teach in the spring. And we were in a time uh, of COVID when we were locked, all locked down and political stuff was happening and racial issues and all kinds of things and they were trickling in our church and there's people at odds with one another and disagreeing about things and we said we need to address this. Hill City Church our, and I say our, not your, our anger is an opportunity to grow. So we have been over the past year in a worldwide collective trauma, haven't we, with COVID? No one, a year, I was talking about this with Nelson yesterday in my house. A year ago, this day, we had no idea what was coming in two weeks, did we? <laughs> we didn't have a clue. I was hopping on a plane with my kids to go to spring break. 
We had no clue. And we've been through a collective trauma. And can we all have the integrity to say that this trauma of COVID has brought some anger in us that maybe has surprised us? How quickly my fuse snaps when I can't go to a movie theater. And we saw that trickling in, even in my own heart, into relationships in our church. Then in a season of collection, collective trauma, our angers were raging. They're raging. And so you can look at a thing like COVID and say, oh man, this is awful. How could God let that happen? Or you could look at a thing like COVID and say, what an opportunity to address my anger. See, our anger reveals our idolatry. So our, my anger is not provoked by an external circumstance. It's just the external circumstance becomes the thing that allows my angry heart to have a target and come out. James, the book of James, he says it beautifully. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Him, that's what. Brad's a jerk. Amen. <laughs> it's him, that's what causes. It's his viewpoint, it's her mindset, it's what she did, it's what he wore. Oh, no. Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. <laughs> you covet, you want something, and you can't get it, so you fight and you quarrel. Did you hear me, sir? Our anger is probably mostly fueled by our idolatry. Yes, what that person did to you was wrong, but let's not assume that it's all on them. As a matter of fact, let's not assume that it's mostly on them. Let's assume that it has to do with our desires that become demands. And when we don't get what we want, we rage. So, what a perfect opportunity. So, the coffee maker broke this week. So, you guys came to church and didn't get any coffee. Uh, anyone feel some rage build up? I get my coffee here every single week. Some of you did it. You're like, oh, yep, guilty. I did it. I came this morning. Coffee maker, my, I can't walk. I'm like, Nelson, will you get some coffee? Yeah, I'll get it. And he starts doing a bunch of stuff. I'm like, Nelson, can you get me some coffee? You got to walk down to Ethic. Yeah, I'll get it. An hour later, I was furious. I need my coffee. I can't preach about Jesus without my coffee. James says, what causes anger? It's your idolatry that we want and we can't get, so we murder. Well, James, that's a little, that's a little over the top. Mur I didn't murder anyone. Jesus taught on this very thing. He taught of the connection of lust and anger. So James says, what causes quarrels and, quarrels and fights among you? Uh, your lust, which comes across in hate and murder. What did Jesus say? Hey, you've heard it said, don't look lustfully at a woman, but I say if you do, you commit adultery. And what's he say next? You've heard it said, don't hate or don't have anger, but I say, uh, or don't murder, but I say if you have anger, you've already killed someone. Jesus connects lust and anger in his Sermon on the Mount. 
James connects it right here. Most of our anger is idolatry. It's the old self. It's the old clothes. Look, here's the question. Are you aware? Are you aware of your own idolatry? Are you doing the hard work of addressing your idolatry or are you just raging? Are you aware of the underlying desires that become demands that when you don't get, you attack? See, our anger is an opportunity to grow because most of it's fueled by our own evil passions. So he says your old clothes, the old way is I want it and I want it now. I want it my way. And whoever doesn't give it my way, they're my enemy. That's the old clothes. Now, the new clothes, Colossians 3.12. Put on them. It's God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Once again, you see the identity statements? He, he says it again. Even before he gives them the list of what to do, he's like, remember, it's identity. You're God's chosen ones. You're holy and beloved. All right, so put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, which will happen, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you almost also must forgive. And above these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So he says, put off anger, wrath, malice. And then the put on, what's connected to that? Compassionate hearts and kindness. Let's take the first one, compassionate hearts. Now this is, I want you to see the difference. Compassion is an internal thing. Compassionate hearts. Kindness is external. So compassionate hearts. Here's what it, it's gut level compassion. As a matter of fact, that, that compassionate hearts translated literal in the Greek means bowels of mercy. It means this deep mercy and grace for one another that forms at your gut. That's what compassion is. Um, compassion is a function of the heart. Compassion is not something you do, it's who you are. So Jesus doesn't act compassionate. Jesus is compassion. That is his identity. One who is compassionate. It was his life on earth. And I'll give you some examples. Jesus showed his compassion. And Jesus has compassion even now as he sits at the right hand of God. Here's what Hebrews 4.15 says. For we... This is, do we not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, our struggles, our sin? We have one who in every way, Jesus, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Here's the idea. We have a high priest who has sympathy for us, who sympathizes us. That's compassion. 
He's walked this planet. He knows what it's like. He knows the, the, the struggles, the, the, the invitation to sin. He's felt it. And because of that, he has compassion. And now, because Jesus has compassion, he says, now we can draw near and receive mercy. In other words, Jesus isn't pointing his finger at you. He's inviting you with open hands. Compassion. That we expect to receive mercy from Jesus because he is compassionate. Here's my question. Is that how you view God? Because most of you view God as someone who's mildly displeased with you. Or majorly displeased with you. And you need to see that you have a high priest who's not pointing his finger but is open armed. I could read you 50 500 places from the Gospels of Jesus. Here's one. Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. But they, they, were, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What happened when Jesus came across sinners? Compassion. He moved towards them. All right, Hood, be careful. You're just giving us one side of Jesus. You're just trying to show us this nice little hippie Jesus. It's like, oh, I love everyone. He's kind and compassionate. That's only one side of Jesus. You're right. There's another side. You know when it came out? When he identified self-righteous people. That's when his uh, anger was provoked. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs because they viewed themselves above other, other, other people. The ones he showed compassions to are the ones that knew they were broken. So, Jesus comes up to a well. It's the middle of the day and a woman comes up there. And she's there because she's not allowed the well at any other point of the day. And she has a, she has a backstory. She's had several husbands. She's with a guy now that's not her husband. And Jesus encounters her. And he engages her with compassion and kindness. So much that after he's done talking to her, she goes into the city and tells everyone, this guy told me all of my sins. Would she have done that if Jesus would have raged on her? No, she'd have walked away in shame. Watch how he interacted with the woman at the well. Compassion. See, compassion is heart level. Here, you want to grow compassion? Here's what I, I learned something several years ago um, in working with people. The following thing, that there is a reason for everything. The thing that you hate about another person, the thing that drives you crazy, their deep struggle. Can I just tell you I've learned something? There's a reason for it. Does that justify it? No, of course not. There's a reason for it. And when you begin to see underneath the exterior of what you see on the surface of people and get to that deeper reason, that will grow compassion. So I was listening to radio on the way to church this morning, and uh, I never thought I'd say this, but Justin Bieber spoke to my heart, okay? He pulled my strings. I got a little tear in my eye. Uh, never happened to me before with Justin Bieber. But he has a song uh, called Lonely, talking about how he's felt judged his whole life and, and, uh, by people and how instead he was actually really lonely. And he has this line, Maybe there's a price you pay for the money and fame at an early age. And everybody saw me as I was sick. 
And they criticized the things I did as an idiot kid. And then he goes on the course to say, I was really lonely. See, it's easy to pick apart people's actions. Oh my gosh, look what he's doing. Do you know what it's like to have all the money and fame in the world when you're 14? And how that might mess with your head? Compassion. See, compassion gets below the exterior and sees there is a reason for everything. And it moves us. Where does it move us? Kindness. Okay? So kindness is compassion embodied. Let me say it again. Compassion is a heart level thing. I feel compassion. Kindness is passion embodied. I embody that compassion so much that it's displayed as kindness to another. Or kindness is the overflow of compassion. It's compassion in action. Kindness is embodied. You can't fake kindness. So, uh, you guys know this. I love psychology. I love researching what makes us tick, what's going on in our brains. Um, so we have this thing called the limbic system, which is our fight-flight mentality. It's what fires. So if I throw something through your face right now, your hands will automatically go up. That's your limbic system. It's controlled. You can't control it. It just happens. Okay? Um, your facial muscles, how you portray kindness, how you portray, portray anger, disapproval, all the f- muscles in your face. 70% of your face is controlled by your limbic system. Meaning you can't, you don't have ownership over it. So someone says, hey, uh, hey, I'd like to talk to you about, here's a deep struggle that I have, and they share it with you. 70% of your face is controlled by your limbic system. Kindness cannot be faked. Your face will reveal what you really think. See, kindness grows out of compassion. And kindness is portrayed, but it comes from what you believe about people. Compassion. So I can't tell you, be kind. That's fake. Kindness is embodied because of compassion. The Bible says this, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And I think sadly the church forgets this because we believe people are judged into life change. Or that they're proved wrong into life change. No, you want to know how life change happens? Love. People are loved into life change. Uh, While I'm on the topic, we're not allowed to judge non-Christians. You know that? Read your Bible. Not allowed to judge non-Christians. They haven't submitted to the Bible's authority in their life. You're not allowed to judge them. I had to get off social media. And part of it from my heart was because I was seeing Christians rail non-Christians for all that they believed or didn't believe. With this fury and this anger. And it is, I believe, evil. the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Let me me give you some examples. Jesus with his disciples, he's walking along the road and he hears them. They're talking behind him. They're arguing about who's the greatest. So picture this. Jesus is out front. He's walking. His disciples are back there and John's like, I'm the greatest. Peter's like, oh no, you're not because I did this one and they're arguing about it. Now, Jesus gets to where they're going and he turns around. He's like, you guys are morons. Why can't you get this right? 
No. What's he say? Hey, guys, what were you arguing about back there? And you know every single one was like, oh, busted. And then he goes on to kindly and graciously teach, hey, hey, servants are first in my kingdom. It's kindness. Jesus comes across a blind man. The blind man says, Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what would you like me to do for you? Kindness. Jesus is teaching one day, and this woman is dragged before him, and she's committed adultery. Um, now, side note, I don't know where the man is, but she's the only one drugged before him. But she's there, and there's a bunch of men who are ready to stone her because she's committed adultery. Had she, had she done something wrong? Yeah, she committed adultery. And Jesus has this moment, you know, where he says, hey, all of you that have never sinned, throw the first stone and... and you can, you can see this picture of people start dropping their rocks and they walk away. And then Jesus looks at her. And you, I can almost see him bending down beside her. And he says, I can't believe you'd sleep with someone that's not your husband. No, he didn't. What did he say? Hey, uh, woman, where are your accusers? And you, you can kind of picture her. She probably looks up and sees all the men are gone. He says, where are your accusers? And she's like, they're gone. Uh, there's no one left to condemn me. And Jesus says, and neither do I. Kindness. Was Jesus telling her that what she did was okay? No. But he knew if that woman's going to see change, it's going to come with kindness before it's going to be condemning. Is the voice of Jesus is the face of Jesus, the body of Jesus, one with a pointed finger or open arms. Read your Gospels. Read them. See, what happens? So in a, siblings and saints, when we have a church community where we begin to put off anger and wrath and malice, knowing that the things that drive me crazy about someone, um, that it's just as much me as it is them. Actually, it's more me than it is them. And we begin to have compassion for one another. We begin to see there's something deeper with everyone. It leads to a kindness. And when we embody kindness, this is the beauty of the church. When you embody kindness to another, you become the face of Jesus. You ever thought when someone comes to you in their struggles and you show kindness, compassion, I am with you. You become the face of Jesus on their behalf. You embody the kindness of God that leads to repentance. But if you've never done the work of compassion, you will not be able to show kindness. You'll show judgment. You'll show anger. You'll show wrath. You'll show, well, come on, get your act together. Of course, kindness. So I'm, I'm working out Friday. Like I said, squatting like 500 pounds or something. And um, my back like tweaks and it feels like I get shot. And some, anyone ever had this happen before? Some old people in the crowd? Yeah, there's a few of and I just like, I hit the floor and every muscle in my back is spasming at the same time. Like I literally can't move. And I'm just like, uh, 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 like, okay. And uh, I was working at a gym and, and the owner, Jared, comes up to me and he's a big old buff dude. He looks about like me, but just like ripped, okay? <laughs> Six pack. And I'm like spasming on the ground in like a number, like a 10 level pain. And he comes in my face, he's like, 
Well, you probably quit eating donuts all the time. No. Guys, this big old man, I'm talking big old man, gets down on the floor beside me, and he looks at me, he's like, hey, we got this. It's like, hold on to me, squeeze. And I'm like, oh, he's right there with me. It's like, just breathe. Kindness. And after about 20 minutes, as the pain starts to leave, and I start to, okay, I can eat. He looks at me, he's like, hey, hey, we're going to get your core strong. We're going to fix this so this doesn't happen again. That comes after kindness. See, that's the repentance part. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's the kindness for one another that will lead to then working on change. Kindness is compassion embodied. What does compassion look like for you? As you hear anger that's fueled by evil desire that wars within you, and then you hear the invitation for passion, for compassion and kindness, what does the Spirit want to do in you? Could you address that this morning? Um, because you're, if we want to have a church that sees true life change, please hear me on this, because we are, we're four and a half years old, five years old, we are still shaping the culture of our church. If we want to see a church uh, that has true life change in it, then the thing that must define us is kindness and compassion first before any finger pointing ever happens. Actually, if you want to point fingers, you can do it right here. The thing that must form us is kindness and compassion because that's what leads to change. I saw this modeled a few years ago. One of those profound moments in my life, we're at a college leader retreat. Some of you all were there. And uh, in our college leader retreats, we do a lot of stuff and we split them in groups. And so there's groups of guys and girls together, like five or six, and they're sharing uh, about just their life and, and there's this and I what I do is I just kind of hop around and I'll sit in a group for a minute and go to another one so I happen to be sitting in this group and one of the guys uh, one of our college leaders shares that he, he's got this deep struggle with pornography that he's been fighting and he has people around him but it just it keeps he just keeps losing he says he said it, it makes me feel like I can never be a good husband the fact that I can't break this I can't shake this I'm disqualified to be a husband. In one of the most beautiful moments I've seen, there was a girl in that group who had been harmed by guys before. And she looks at him in the eyes and says, the fact that you, in a group like this, could share that makes you more qualified to be a husband. And he melted. He wept. Because he needed to hear kindness. He knew his struggle. He hated his struggle. He hated himself. He needed to hear kindness. And in that moment, that girl became the face of Jesus to him. That's the old, or that's the new clothes. The old clothes is just seeing the surface and hating people for how they are. The new clothes is compassion. Kindness. And that's what Paul hopes for this church, for that, for that church, and that's what we hope for this church. Will Hill City be a place that's critical of one another, or will we be a place that's kind to one another? Will we be a place that's compassionate for one another, or will we be condemning of one another? Will we be skeptical all the time 
of everyone around us, or will we be hopeful? Will we have a gospel-centered church? So how do I get there? Here's what I can't do. Be compassionate. Be kind. I can't do that. That has to come from within. So how, let me give you three things to close out my message. It'll be really quick. How do I begin to stir compassion and kindness in me? Let me give you three ideas of where to start. Number one, you need to engage your own story and then embrace other people's. When you begin to hear other people's stories and not just see their struggles, but begin to see what's underneath those, your heart will grow with compassion. It will. So I started college ministry when I was 30 years old. Um, and uh, just let me speak real for a minute. I hated, and I use that term, hated, stereotypical frat boys. Hated them. I, I say stereotypical. You know what I mean by that? I saw how they abused and used women, and I hated them. Zero compassion, zero kindness. Until I finally started getting around some of them and hearing their stories and hearing that they were actually wounded little boys that were just taking the pain onto others. And it began to grow compassion in me that led to kindness. But you can't fake kindness. I got compassion for them because I got into their stories. You want to go to compassion? Get in the stories of someone else. The person that drives you crazy, ask them questions about their life, and it may grow compassion. That's the first thing. Get in other stories. Here's the second thing. How do I grow compassion? I look at my own sin. I look at the depths of my own sin and say, you know what? The thing that angers me about someone else, maybe it exists in here too. Can I just tell you this? Uh, the thing that you hate so much about other people is what you hate in yourself. It just comes out as anger towards them. It's really shame in your own heart. So let's look at, the mo let's look at our sin. That, that's, that's a step. First uh, Timothy, this is what Paul would say in First Timothy 1 Timothy uh, 15. The saying is trustworthy and true that Christ came into the world to save sinners, which Paul says, I am the foremost. That's what he says. Paul says, Christ came into this world to save sinners. And Paul's like, and guess who's chief sinner number one? Me. That had better be your posture. Because when you look at your own sin, then you can see the grace and mercy and kindness of God displayed to you. While you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Jesus died for you. You dwell on your own sin. And then you see and dwell on the kindness of God given to you. And that will begin to change your heart. That will begin to grow compassion that will be embodied as kindness. Let me close with the scripture that Jarrell read earlier. And you... We're dead in the trespasses and sins and once you once walked. That's your old identity. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Do you hear the kindness of God on your behalf? While you were at your worst, Christ loved you 
and died for you. And now out of that love, so you can die to the old self that feels anger and live in the new self of Christ, which shows compassion and kindness. Let's stand.